Hey, hey, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Something True. This one, oh, I I love every episode. I really do. And for different reasons. This was one of those that I expected to, I was really looking forward to and I expected to be great. And it was better than that for me. It was one of those that hit me right where I needed to be hit, when I needed it, and it was such a gift. Uh, So we all have those days, right, when things go a bit sideways, and then sometimes it's a string of days, but the clouds part and the seas calm, all good. Sometimes it's months. And then there are those times when it feels like life has just hit the blender, and it goes on not for days or months, but literal years. And what do you do in those times? How do you keep going? And when it passes, how do you make sense of it? Shauna Nyquist's latest book is an offering to that end. It's called, I guess I haven't learned that yet. Amazing title and amazing story behind the title. And it's one of my favorite book covers ever. She covers a time in her life in this book when everything, like every single thing, was tossed up in the air or in the blender, as she says. Family, vocation, faith, sense of belonging, just to name a few things. And then also, on top of it, menopause. Awesome. Some books arrive right when you need them, and this one for me was that kind of book. She is a beautiful writer, for one, but she has this rare gift of being able to inspire while never, ever getting saccharine, to be honest without overexposing, and to impart wisdom without ever being preachy. There are zero preachy words in this book, not a single one. You may know Shauna through her work as the best-selling author of Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine, Savor, and Present Over Perfect. She came ready to talk, and this was one of those conversations that, again, I didn't want to end because I needed it so much, far more than I expected to need it, and it's such a gift. I have a feeling it may hit you that way, too. So don't forget, there is a Spotify playlist for every episode we create. You can just get it for free by searching us up on Spotify. And if you haven't become a paid subscriber yet, we hope you will do that or consider doing it. The financial support of all of you who get something out of these conversations is what keeps them going ad free. It really, really does matter. And I also want to say thank you to everyone who has shared this podcast because you love it and you want to share it with friends or family or the people that you care about or the people that you gently want to nudge and say, oh, you might need this. The show is growing a lot. And we know it's because thousands of you have spread the word about things that we're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're coming up on a year of this show. It's been one of the steady gifts of me, of of my life through this past year, one of the uh, stable, steady, just good feeling things, things that I look forward to, things that 
keep me going, things that don't change, haven't changed when everything else has been changing a lot. So, ready? Here you go. Here's Shauna. Enjoy. It's great to meet you. Thank you. You too. Um, Yeah. So I'm just going to jump right in. I thought I'd start by actually uh, reading from the book. In chapter 37, it's called Bloom. You say, the first couple of years of my 40s were like living in a blender. Lots of bad and lots of good, but all of it together, loud and fast, one thing after another. It should tell you something that moving to Manhattan, of all places, was a respite. That's how intense the preceding seasons had been. So I figured this question might get us all in the same place. The book feels like you sharing about these blender years. I mean, it's about the whole of your life, but really these blender years uh, with some wisdom, but also a lot of questions still and curiosity. So can you give us the Cliff Notes version of the blender? Absolutely. Um, Well, you know, I don't want to say it all started with the 2016 election, but a lot of things did. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, politically and culturally and in our churches, we were all witnessing and participating in this increasing set of divisions. So that's Mm -hmm. happening to all of us. And for the, at the time I was working as a part of um, a tour where large groups of women, largely Christian women, were gathering together in cities. And it was my job to find common ground for all of us. And with each passing week in the fall of 2016, that got harder and harder. Then that next year, my husband and I experienced the hardest year of our marriage before or since. It was the first time in our marriage, it felt like um, we both wanted really different things and they were mutually exclusive. We wanted to live different kinds of lives. And we just sort of stared at each other like, how do you, who loses in this one and who wins? And what are the consequences if you have one person who gets what they want and the other doesn't? And is there a third way, but we can't find it? During that time, one of the things that was unfolding between us was um, I had grown up as a part of my family's church and had a lot of loyalty to it. And um, my husband didn't want to be a part of it anymore. He wanted to be a part of a different kind of community. And Uh that tapped into every single loyalty, identity. And then something really hard happened at our church and with my family. And it's not mine to get into the specifics of it, but it was just another layer of some of the ideas and institutions and identities that I had been depending on for such a long time, it felt like, like I was a sailboat and I had, Mm -hmm. I was tied to the dock in a hundred different ways. And I liked it. Mm -hmm. I realized I I like a lot of lines, you know, Mm -hmm. and one by one, the lines were thrown off. And I think that's supposed to feel good, right? Like freedom. It did not feel good. It felt like being lost. It felt like I was surprised that I even recognized my own face in the mirror. One thing that I didn't put together until much later is I was also in menopause without knowing it. And menopause, as I'm learning about it, is um, some people, it's like a blip. For me, it's like a, like a train wreck. Like a, I keep saying it's like a haunting, like every single part of how I understand myself in my own skin 
stopped being that way. And so there were these major changes on the outsides of my life, my relationships, my connections, my loyalties. And then also on the inside, I was a person I didn't recognize. And so that's the blender. There's probably more. Those are the things I can think of. That's that's very well done. Um, God, I'm so glad you brought that up about menopause because I just want to linger there for a minute, not to make this a show about menopause, but like that, what you experienced as this sort of complete annihilation of who you understood yourself to be. Well, so and I, it's it's like you're becoming a stranger to yourself. So you spend so much time and energy through your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, trying to get, who am I? Who Who is this spirit? Who is this body? What does she need? What does she like? What works for her? What are the ways to tend to her? You finally start to get the hang of, this is what this body needs. This is what this spirit needs. And then all of a sudden, none of those nope. things work anymore. And you're having to start that process over again with essentially a stranger. God. Am when I making it sound that- great? <laughs> no, you're making it sound real. Oh, good. You're just making it sound like what it is. And I we'll 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 keep going, but it's not all bad either, of course. Like there's all all kinds of chances for discovery and newness and all that, but when you're in it, it feels like absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. So why Manhattan? Explain. So, um it is the f- looking back we knew we wanted to leave the Chicago area. My husband had spent his whole life in the Midwest and really wanted to live somewhere else. And so we did this whole kind of like Goldilocks process where we, I mean, there's all these cities that you like to visit or towns that you like to visit. And then you start thinking about moving there and you're like, I don't know, maybe we could do that. And so it felt like we kept visiting cities and having this very conspicuous, like, oh, I loved this for a weekend, but our life is not here. Like it doesn't, yeah. and there there weren't a lot of concrete reasons all the time. It was just like a, this is not my bed kind of feeling. And it was hard. Um, and in the mean, right at the same time, we developed this little tradition of going to, coming to Manhattan in the summers. We had some friends who um, are a part of a church that we really love. And the grownups are kids, our friends, and the kids are friends. And we would just come every summer and Aaron would lead worship and I would preach and, um, but we, it somehow never occurred to us. Like, I think when you grow up in the suburbs of the Midwest, you're like, nobody moves to Manhattan. I don't know. What am I, a it's Broadway star? Planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And then a couple of our friends here, they were like, I mean, can we have this conversation? Like, it feels like it's right in front of your face. And we were like, I, it was totally one of those things. It's like the rom-com where like the best friends look at each other and realize they've been in love forever. Like, <laughs> yeah. as soon as we opened our minds to... We were like, oh, oh, you've been here all along. And then mm-hmm. all the things that had been stuck in all the other places, all the doors just like opened when you tapped on them. So we fe- yeah. felt a real sense of like, life is speaking pretty loudly to us. And it, it's it's not, I don't think life forces us most of the time, but it invites us. And this was like a clear as a bell invitation. And there's also practical reasons. Um, we happen to find a great place to live with great schools for our kids. Um, my husband was able to get a graduate degree that he was really excited about. We have a handful of good friends here. Uh, we love live theater. I love good restaurants. My husband loves good coffee. You know, like all the things on the list. It, it's just been a great fit for us. When when did it happen? What year? November 2018. It's so crazy because 
to move to most people don't man, move to Manhattan in midlife. Right. Like, it is a big deal. It's a thing. It's a whole, and it's such a cool part of the story and the theme of the book um, because you were forced to like be new, brand new again. And then 2020 hits. It's interesting on like a spiritual level, I think, that you were called into there. Yeah. And then you're, you're, you're riding the pandemic out in the city. Well, and we actually did go just, you know, nobody knew it was happening. In March of 2020, we went back to Michigan thinking it would be like they were going to close the schools here. We were going to gone for two weeks. Um, we have this tiny little cottage there. We'll stay there for a little bit. Of course, two weeks turned into five months. And we were really afraid. I mean, our kids had only been here like less than a year and a half. And we were really afraid that once they got back to the Midwest, back to grandparents, they'd be like, this is home. And very quickly they were like, um, this is fine, but when can we go home to New York? And we were like, wow. oh, it happened. So the, in, in a funny way, wow. that really, it was really meaningful for us to see like, this is their home now. When did you go, okay, I want to write about this, like, or this is the next book? So I had been writing in a very frustrating um, on and off and trying to figure out what it was. And I, I, I always write a lot before I know what it is. I definitely like write my way into it. But I yeah. distinctly remember a conversation in the spring of 2020 with my agent, who's a good friend who I've worked with for a long time. And I remember it's like I was kind of trying to like get out of it. Like, okay, the world has the world is irrevocably altered. P publishing probably doesn't exist anymore. We live in the great beyond. Books don't matter. So I don't have to do this, right? <laughs> um, and he was like, I have bad news for you. Um, you went through and are going through the kind of change we are now all going through. And it's your job right now to tell us what you've learned. And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then I took some time and I said, no, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't believe that we experience things so that they can be beneficial for other things, for other people. But I do believe that what we experience can be beneficial for other yeah. people if we want it to be. And so I thought, well, at the very least, what if this really difficult season that I've been through could be like a handhold or a lifeline for somebody else? It doesn't make it worth it by any means, but it at least makes it a little easier for someone else. And that matters to me. I believe that our lives can be useful, that our stories can be useful, that what we experience can be useful. But I think if you believe that God, for example, that God would bring hard things in our into our lives in order to give us something important to say on the other side, that's not a great God. That's, mm. that's a, um, a God who uses people. And that doesn't sound to me um, like the heart of God as I understand him. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that sometimes people say that, like, wow, you know, that feels like a, a bad God that doesn't square with the way I experience and have learned about him. I love that. I asked because it's, it's similar to, I heard Elizabeth Gilbert once say, please don't make your art for me. Like, d don't do that. Don't make your art for me. Don't, don't try to help me. Mm -hmm. Like, make your art because that's what you need to do and make it honest and make it true and make it real and all of that. And then maybe, maybe it will help me. Maybe it will help a lot of people. I'm glad you said that. 
Because it's it feels like one of those platitude things that just feels like, uh, no. When I was in really the most painful stretch, I had a couple people say, you know, this is going to make a great book. And I was like, oh, shut your no. mouth. Like, it doesn't make a great life. How dare you value what I make over my broken heart and my deep grief, you know, um, we're not tools, we're humans. And, and our experiences are not just fodder for someone else's reading pleasure. That's important to me. Um, the life I live is its own thing. And if I, yeah. if I offer something to other people, that's one thing, but it's not at, ex at the expense of um, the human experience. Yes, thank you. Why did you, why did you have the resistance? Why did you say, I don't want to do that when your agent said, no, this is what you're going to do. What was the resistance? Well, so I've written five books now and the first book was all about celebrating everyday life and I loved writing it. And then the second one was all about heartbreak and disappointment. And I hated every day of writing that book. And this, really? yeah. And this was kind of the same thing. The only thing worse than living through a really difficult season is having to write about it, right? Like, oh yeah, you love uh, it again. Right. I can, and I really, I got like really jealous of people who had jobs that were not related to like their inner life and experience. Like, let me go keep teach kindergarten. Let me like, I don't know. Let me do something. My job was looking in the mirror so deeply that was really hard. Not a yeah. not an easy way to live. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True and co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here. Put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. We think the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMSD Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. And whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the pod's production and distribution costs. When you're a member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the AMAs, and you get access to the complete unedited interviews. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift or for as little as five or 10 bucks a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and look, we're just thrilled that you're here. If you can become a member, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. It takes less than two minutes. And thanks a lot. You talked actually a lot in the book about the writing process and that, and how that healed you and helped you. And I'm assuming that's always been the case. Mm -hmm. You said it has, but in this book, a little deeper, a little differently. So I wanted to, I actually want to talk about that. My next question, I want to read again from the book. So this is from Energy in the Air. The next day I woke up to my new morning routine, 
I began by feeling the unfeelable feelings and thinking the unthinkable thoughts. Second, I forgive. I forgive the night. I forgive the people who have hurt me. I forgive the world for not being what I wanted. I forgive myself for all the ways I feel like I'm failing. So I'll stop there. It goes on, but I want to go through each point one by one. So you said, I begin by feeling the unfeelable feelings and thinking the unthinkable thoughts. So my uh, one of the things that I didn't even mention in that whole blender situation is that I had for several years had increasingly significant chronic pain in my neck and shoulders. A chiropractor couldn't figure it out. An orthopedic couldn't figure it out. It wasn't like a spinal thing. It wasn't a muscular thing. It was definitely a mental, emotional thing. And a friend of mine who had struggled with chronic pain in a different way recommended the work of Dr. Sarno. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I am very familiar. Have you yes. seen the documentary, All the Rage? It's amazing. No. So that's the first introduction I had. So my friend said, start with the documentary and then read his book. So it's called All the okay. Rage. And essentially, it's all of these people who have crippling, mostly back pain. And they come, and Dr. Sarno is a celebrated spinal surgeon. And people keep mm -hmm. coming to him and he's like, there is not a surgery I can perform to take this away. Like, I can't, there's nothing wrong with you on an x-ray. And somehow in his research, he stumbles upon this idea, or not stumbles on it, I don't know, it sound like it was an accident, but what he discovers about this certain subset of people that he cannot help with surgery is that there's something in them that is unwilling or unable to feel the unfeelable feelings and think the unthinkable thoughts. And that when he teaches them and, and, and gives them space to do that, usually in the morning, over time, this crippling pain subsides. And I was like, I will try anything. And so I did. And it helps me and I still do it. And it's not, for me, it's different for everybody. It's not that there's some like deep secret from my childhood or um, it's more like the feelings I feel about myself and my place in the world. Um, I'm failing. I'm disappointing people. I'm not good enough. I'm about to make a fool of myself. I know they're there all the time and I don't feel them. And so I just like put them just right into my neck and shoulders. And the more often I can stop and say, I feel afraid about this. I feel badly about the way I handled the situation. I, you know, it's just a way of sort of reckoning, just mm -hmm. allowing myself to feel all the things I don't want to feel. Uh, this person hurt me, even though I want to pretend it's a, not a big deal. You know, all those things. I practice that every morning to just sort of let what's true inside me come out so it doesn't have to live kind of in my body. Oh, there's so much. How do you actually do that process? Is it a thinking thing? Is it a writing thing? Is it a meditation? Is it all of those? Um, sometimes it's a thinking. Sometimes I, I would say uh, sometimes it's a feeling without writing. And sometimes it's mm -hmm. a writing and feeling. Um, and one thing I've learned in therapy, I have an amazing therapist. And most of the therapy I had done previously in my life had been kind of the 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 talk therapy that's very interested in like your story and your patterns and kind of figuring things out. And I am yeah. really good at that. I'm really good at like mental function. 
Oh, yes. Then I went to this new therapist and it was about just staying with the feelings, right? So instead- You're an Enneagram 7, are I you? I am. Are you yeah. as well? So you, Yes. Oh, okay. So you, got we, it. We think our feelings. Yes. All day long. And we're like, we got it. We're fine. That's I exactly have, right. I, I have the answer. I understand. Yes, I know the right thing to say. I know the right thing to feel. I've got it. We're all good. And I do this because of this thing, because of this thing in me, because of how I was raised. And that's why. And da, da, da. Like if I can organize it and understand it, it's going to somehow be resolved. Or, But what I'm learning to do is to just feel the feelings. And so that's what I do. I sit in the morning by myself. Sometimes I write and sometimes I just sit in the feelings um, and let them sort of live in my heart. And then I sort of picture letting them leave my body. And it really helps me like shockingly, a shockingly large amount. It really helps me. You're making me like almost want to cry right now, which, which is, which also barely ever happens. Really? Because <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time crying for that reason. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is good. I'm hearing it at exactly the right time. Did it, so it helped with the back, with the back and neck pain. It did help and does help. Yeah. And I yeah, practice it yeah. all the time, everywhere. I'll do it on a flight. I'll do it on a subway. I'll do, just, um, I notice, and I wonder if you notice this too, as a seven, um, I feel a feeling so fleetingly and then just make it leave and then focus on something positive. Right. And I'm learning now to get back that initial feeling of pain or grief or anxiety and sit with it long enough to sort of, I think about it in terms of like metabolizing it. Like, yeah, if you just let it into your mouth and spit it right out, it can never nourish you or change you. But, you know, but if you let it go all the way through the system, there you go. Um, and so I'm learning to not be afraid of that practice. And it changes a lot for me. When did you start to do that? It was fall of 2019. So we had been here about a year. And I noticed, you know, like with any big change, there's that sort of adrenaline. So like when we got here, you've got several months of like just coasting by on like, how do we get groceries? Where do we live? How do we, how do we get the kids in school? There's, it's, there's enough newness and excitement. And then that next fall, I really crashed. I felt very depressed. Mm. Um, I cried constantly while I was writing. I would sometimes cry so hard I would throw up. And I was like, hang on, like we, I need some help. That's when I got this new therapist. That's when I read Dr. Sarno's work. And then later that fall was when a doctor told me that I was in full menopause. And I had never heard that before. I had no idea. And so that sent me down a whole other path in terms of other ways to kind of address what was happening from a mental health standpoint. But yeah, fall of 2019. Okay. Makes sense. So continuing on this thread, you say second, after thinking the unfeelable, feel, unthinkable, unfeelable feelings and thinking the unthinkable thoughts, second, I forgive. I forgive the night. I forgive the people who have hurt me. I forgive the world for not being what I wanted. I forgive myself for all the ways I feel like I'm failing. I was so curious about the I forgive the night line. Well, a couple things. I would say if if you had to boil down my entire spiritual perspective, this might be a little too narrow, but it might come down to forgiveness and gratitude. Um, mm-hmm. Forgiveness to me is the heart of my faith. Um, and it, the idea that 
I need to be forgiven, certainly, but also that I need to forgive other people and even just forgive the world for not being everything I want it to be. And then gratitude, the other side of that, celebrate and be grateful for the world for all the things it is. But I was going through the most ridiculous stretch of insomnia. And some of what was so hard about that is I have been just a champion sleeper in my in my life. I've just been a, like, yeah. I could fall asleep standing up. I could drink a cup of black coffee and fall asleep. Like I just, I'd never thought for a minute. And then all of a sudden, it was like like my bed started becoming like I would glare at it when I would come into the bedroom like you. Oh. I tried all the things. I tried everybody's recommendation. I had all these little evening routines and the nighttime just became like a battlefield. And so I had to wake mm-hmm. up in the morning and forgive the night because I would wake up so mad at it. So that's what I yeah. that's it. and then you know forgiveness in my experience we want it to be a before and after right like I forgave that person permanently and forever yeah, and in my experience I've said before it's like moving a piece of furniture across the room and then you wake up the next morning and it went back to its old place and you have to move it again for a long time that's just how it is and so part of my morning routine was working on the process of forgiveness, forgiving the night for not letting me sleep, forgiving the people who had wounded me, um, and forgiving myself. Again, those unfeelable feelings for me are almost always self-criticism. And so one of the ways that I can release some of that pain mentally and physically is forgiving myself. That's so good. And then you say, then I make space for desire. What do I want? I want to heal. I want healing. I want to move through pain and leave it behind. I want lightness and freedom of spirit. Andrew, my beloved therapist, encouraged me to set aside time every day to feel the sadness. I knew the power of the magic desk. That's your writing desk. But I forgot a couple of days, so I went back and wrote over the questions. You say, what's happening inside me? What's happening around me? What might I need to learn or unlearn or face right now? Am I offering deep kindness and forgiveness toward myself, deep kindness and forgiveness for others? Am I tending lovingly to myself and others? What do I need to walk away from or walk towards? And what requires my participation or voice? If we woke up every morning and tried to answer those questions, we would have a different life. Yes, and I wish I woke up every single morning and asked those questions. And in some seasons, right. I it's do. It's almost a yeah. little much. It's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a almost a little yeah. much. It's like a mini but retreat. Like once a week. Yeah. Once a week. Yeah. You know, did he, I can't remember. Did he give those to you? No, he did just, he just encouraged me. I, those were my questions. He encouraged me to set aside time for pain. Like he kind of said, I know you're afraid to live all day, every day in the pain and you want to run away from it. But then it blindsides you and that doesn't work either. And he said, what if you create a safe space every day? You're at your desk. It's a good space for you. You feel like you're kind of protected and and, and you just spend a certain amount of minutes facing all the things. You don't have to live in that place, but you have to get there a little bit every day. And so now one of the things I've been doing is And again, that list is admittedly aggressive, but if someone were to even spend five minutes and if the two things you were to think about first thing in the morning were pain and desire, what hurts Mm -hmm. and what do I want? I think especially for women, we don't allow ourselves Mm -hmm. to really consider what hurts or what's not working or what left a bruise or what's too heavy, but then also desire. What am I longing for? 
who am I jealous of? And what does that say about what I want in my life? Mm. What's missing? That's a good one. Those yeah. kind of questions, I think five minutes on pain and desire reorients us pretty quickly. I love that. We can maybe marry my our two like ideas because at night, one of the things I was taught was to do a fear list and a gratitude list. Mm-hmm. These are the things I'm afraid of today, right now. These are the things I'm grateful for, like five, 10 things. Mm-hmm. It takes two minutes to five minutes. And sometimes I'll write longer, you know, because you get you get going on something. But it really like clears my mind before I try to go to bed. And if you woke up and wrote what hurts and what do I desire, like if I, I think I'm going to try it. I think I'm going to have a new morning, a new <laughs> evening and morning routine. Well, and the gratitude thing, I do that in the evenings as well. I find that I can, I do pain and desire in the morning and then I do gratitude yeah. in the evening and that rhythm kind of right. works for me. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude's easy at night because mm-hmm. there's something about being tired and kind of worn thin where I can access it. I can feel it. The energy's slower. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. And then the morning, the, the hurt and desire. I like it. Okay, I, we're going to finish through this little part. This was just, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. So you say, I kept writing, kept asking questions, kept making space for grief, forgiveness, pain, and desire. I kept walking, willing spring to come around me and inside me. You wrote this in like the late winter, early spring. And then there was a moment later when I was walking up the stairs to our apartment alone, hand on the wobbly banister, mind, mind churning after so much grief, so much wrestling so much pleading. I don't want this to be my life. I felt that click of acceptance. Something inside me said, clear as an audible word. I can live inside this life. I can make myself a home in this story. People make it through all kinds of things and I can make it through this. I can and I am. Can you just talk about that? You know, I think I mean, what we're talking about is acceptance. We're talking about like, hello to here. These are the terms. This is what's on offer. But for those of us who have had the tremendous luxury of being mostly in control of our own choices, when your life has been changed in some really difficult ways by other people's choices, um, it's difficult to come to terms with that. It's difficult to accept that when some of the choices, when you feel like your own body is sort of working against you, um, Mm -hmm. when the life that you thought you were going to lead is no longer available to you. I I love our life in New York. I love it so much, but I had a very clear picture of what I wanted. And it was a farmhouse in the suburbs of Chicago with all my best friends and my cousins and my extended family having dinner at the kitchen island three nights a week. That's what I wanted. And, and you had it. I had like, it. You were in that life. Mm-hmm. Like That's what I think is so, so different about your what you wrote about is that you were in this life that you really wanted, like all in 100%. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it wasn't like... I mean, things exploded and and things caused you to you to change eventually or to make this move eventually. But like you were in that life. Mm-hmm. It's like a reverse. It's like a reverse process in a way. It is. But I think a lot of you know, I have a, a really close friend who went through an unexpected divorce and she felt a similar set of things. This is the future I wanted, 
and another person's decision took it away from me. And uh, I, I have a friend who lost a business this year that he had founded. And, you know, anytime, whether it's the economy or an individual or your body or a diagnosis or whatever, I think there's that impulse to like, why can't I control this? Because we're able yeah. to control so many other parts of our lives. And um, it took me a really long time to come around to making peace with this just is what is. And I'm strong enough to make something beautiful, even out of the life I didn't necessarily choose. Yeah. And you describe that soft click of acceptance so well. You say, I can live inside this life. And then you say, I can and I am. Like you're already in it. You're already here. I'm going to be where I am. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm not going to fight it. Mm -hmm. There's another chapter in the book where I write about the phrase, hello to here. And it's, have you read mm. um, Otuomo's In the Shelter? I love it so much. No, no. You'll no. love it. Um, it. But that's a phrase that he uses all the way through. Um, hello to here. Hello to pain. Hello to loneliness. Hello to joy. And it's just a way of, it's another way to use language to talk about being present to what is, as opposed to escapism or fantasy or numbness or pretending. So hello to here. This is the story hello of my life. And I get to invest in it and make it beautiful or rail against it and miss it while I'm doing that. That's the choice we all have. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Because there's days I want my life. And whenever I read about acceptance, I just, something in my heart just, it's like when Cheryl Strayed wrote, um, like acceptance is a small, quiet room. Mm -hmm. There's... And, and you wrote, it's like a soft click. Mm -hmm. It's uh do you still find, do you feel like, so, like acceptance is still like a practice, like forgiveness, like, okay, going to move the chair, the chair across the room again today, or is, is it a little different? It is a little different. That, that moment did feel a little bit like a before and after. I mean, not entirely. Mm -hmm. I would say it's like maybe meet in the middle. Um, it's not as daily as forgiveness, but it, it, it's not, you know, a magical moment. What has been the reaction? What how's p this book coming out been? How I have to imagine because it is different than what it's a big deal. Like what you you wrote about a lot of really it's a very I mean it's been received very well, but it's a very it's a very tender book, but it's very very honest mm -hmm. and very I don't want to say vulnerable. It sounds not right, but like it's it's like you let us into your heart. Mhm. Mm were you scared to publish it? And what has it felt like? Yes, I was scared to publish it 100%. Um, it had been a long time since I had published anything. Um, mm -hmm. I had been really, really hurt by um, in a, a handful of different times on social media. So I was really um, like sensitive and gun shy about sharing anything at all. I had a total meltdown a month before I turned the book in where I said once again, like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Not I can't finish it. Like, oh. I can't turn the whole thing in. Like, this isn't, how do I give back the check? You know, <laughs> um, right. it just felt too hard. Um, yeah. And so I was very nervous. And then um, right away, the responses were really different than I thought. And they were notably personal. And there were people talking about their connection to it 
People are not saying like, wow, it's beautiful, or I love your phrasing or the imagery. It's nothing about that. It's this made me think about my life. This connected with this part of what I've grieved. This put words to, and that feels very, very meaningful to me. And, and it's, it's a little, it's less congratulations and more, oh my goodness, I'm there too. Yes. And you right. can't, I mean, you know, right. with the writing process, you start something so long before, <laughs> and then it's in production for so long and you're writing it for so long and then it's being printed. And then the world changes a hundred times. You can yes. never anticipate into which moment a book is going to land. And you can't divorce the, the environment in which a book is born from the book. Oh, I mean, of course. it just becomes part of the, it becomes part of it. Right. And that's absolutely out of your control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This landed, I think, at a beautiful time, like a very necessary time. I think it did. And I take absolutely no credit for that. It's just, I'm yeah, so- Yeah, well, you can't. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. I had, you know, could never have predicted it. And I'm super, yeah, grateful for that. That means a lot to me. Well, I um, I want to be mindful of your time. I want to talk about the the last chapter, which is my favorite. It's called Still Yes. I'm going to read the last few lines. I still say yes to life. I still say yes to creative work, to the church gathered, to storytelling and hospitality, to living with an open heart. I still say yes to risk, to adventure, to diving into the wreck to making something beautiful from loss. I still believe in Jesus Christ, in the power of the table, both the Eucharist and also takeout around a cramped apartment table. I still believe in forgiveness, laughter, pizza for breakfast, dancing in the kitchen. I still say yes to second chances, staying out too late, watching the sunset like a movie, holding hands, farmer's markets, taking the long way home. Is the world still beautiful? Still, yes. Do our stories still matter? Still, yes. Am I still hopeful? Still, yes. Will I trust people? Will I trust God? Will I trust myself? Still, yes, yes, yes. It's so good. It's so, the reason it's so good and felt so good to me is because this isn't, um, There's a lot of pain in the book. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of confusion and frustration and sadness and sorrow. And it's still like, this is what we, this is the message that I need. Mm -hmm. And I think the world needs now is you're not saying this from a, um, you're not saying this from a naive or innocent place. It's like you you went through a lot of fires and still, yes, like still, yes, I, I still want to be here. I still love the world. I still love God. I still, yes. I imagine in my mind, this came out like in one whoosh, like at the end. hundred percent. Yes, it did. And I think the, you know, the other part of it is, you know, there's the, the pain and the willingness to still hope. Some of it too is this book, I was writing it real time during a season where I was changing so quickly. Like I didn't, again, keep talking about like not being recognizable. Um, And I became a little bit detached from the idea of like really fixed identity. This is who I am. This is who I'm not. This is what I wear. This is what I don't. I was like, I don't know. Who knows? 
And I, I don't want to be bound by that anymore. I just want to like keep moving forward and deciding like it's not as much about me and my identity. It's more about how I walk in the world and experience the world. And then right at the very end of that whole process that I was living through and walking through, I was like, but hang on, there are a handful of things that will always be true about me. Um, and these are them. So there's a lot that's changed, but there's a handful of things that have, haven't. And I'm going to carry them with me into whatever the new season is. And whoever this new woman is, there'll still be a handful yeah. of things that will always be me. I, I want everyone to read this book. I think especially, um, I mean, my the people who listen to this are women mostly of our age. There's a, there's men out there too. And there's a, there's, there's a whole audience, but a lot of people in midlife, I'll say that. And this is like the biggest gift to midlife. It should be like, oh, you're here. You, you're 45. Okay. <laughs> Here's your birthday <laughs> present from, from God. Read oh, Shauna's book. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I could talk to you for a really long time. This oh, I feel really just the same way. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. 